Say c'est bon. Welcome to Paris Good Food and Wine here on World Radio Paris. I'm your host, Paige Donner. During the next half hour, we'll be taking you on a culinary adventure through Paris while also shining our spotlight on the extraordinary talents and personalities that make up the landscape of Parisian culinary culture. So get ready, because a delicious escapade awaits you here on Paris, good food and wine. So I say it to you Like those French people do because it's all so good. Every In this episode of Paris, Good Food and Wine, we'll be hearing from Alec Lebrano, our featured guest restaurant reviewer and author of Hungry for Paris. He'll give us the scoop about Chef Yannick Ayeno's re-envisioned Pavillon Le Doyenne. The Pavillon Le Doyenne is an iconic Parisian restaurant recently reopened by this superstar chef. Next, you'll hear an interview I did with Chef Ayeno himself about his love of wine and his winemaking collaboration with Cote organic wine champion Michel Chapoutier. Then, you'll get to hear and interview our contributing reporter and patisserie specialist, Gabrielle Mondesir, did with Frederick Lalos, a baker whose praises are sung throughout Paris and even throughout France. Lastly, if music be the food of love, then Krug has a corner on it. At least that's the sense you get when you listen to Krug's president, Marguerite Henriquez, who explains to us why men prefer tannins and women tend to naturally take to the sing-song of champagne. We have a very special restaurant to present to you today. Actually, our Hungry for Paris author, Alec Lebrano, does. And this restaurant has been big news lately here in Paris because it was taken over by three-star Michelin chef Yannick Ayeno. And uh, it's this beautiful little, uh, it's the Pavillon Le Doyen, and it really is a beautiful little pavilion. It just steps from the Place de la Concorde, uh, and yet you could walk by it a hundred times and not really notice it unless you walked into that little sweet little meandering path that, that goes right in front of it. Alec, I am in your hands to hear all about this this f- fabulous restaurant. And also, uh, it's going to be very interesting to hear if you think that it's it's worth it, given these, these price points. The price points are pretty vertiginous. There's no question about it. Just so that you know, before we go any further, the prefix menu at dinner at Le Doyen is 300 euros. At lunch, it's almost 130 euros. Um, average a la carte would probably land you in the vicinity of 350 euros ahead, and that's without drinks. So, um, yes, a meal at Le Doyen is a hefty investment. Yannick Ayano is one of one of France's superstar chefs. And, uh, you know, of course, as I already mentioned, he has those three stars. Um but how does this differ from his other from his other restaurants? Of of course, he now when he stepped away from Le Maurice last year, this is now his new endeavor. So, what what's he playing with here? What, what's new here? Um, well, it's been fascinating to watch Yannick Alino evolve because, as you said, he did have three Michelin stars at Le, Le Maurice. He also has a two star restaurant in Courchevel uh, in the French Alps. 
And what he's been doing there in Courchevel um, was kind of a prototype of what he's now rolled out in Paris. Yannick is a very creative chef. He has a, a, an astonishing mastery of technique. And he's been, uh, he's a little laboratory in the, um, near the Gare Montparnasse in the left bank. And he's been fascinated by the idea of extracting the essence of products. And what that means, for example, is he will, quote, sweat Parmesan so that the cheese um, exudes its moisture and then use that very, very, very potent Parmesan-flavored liquid, for example, in a dish. He does the same thing with different types of vegetables, with with meat, with seafood. Um, And it's a very avant-garde cooking technique. And on this new menu, there's a mixture of avant-garde uh, dishes, and then some, some just exquisitely made traditional French dishes. What's something that, that you enjoyed there? Was it avant-garde, or was it, did you go traditional? What, what did you uh, dare to, to go with? Well, I, I played both sides of it. I played on both sides of the bench at that meal um, because I wanted to try the, the I was curious about the, the new things. Um, but then I couldn't stay away from a dish like a um, a tête de sap en cive, uh, which was the, a big head of a sap mushroom. And cive is a cooking method that's usually used for game in France. And it involves red wine and juniper berries. And Alineau had the genius idea to stew uh, the stems of the sap mushrooms, uh, wood juniper berries and red wine, and then stuff the head of the mushroom with um, with that ragu. Uh, it was an absolutely magnificent dish. It was one of the best things I've eaten in a long time. Was that served as an appetizer or a part of the main? Um, what, what he's also done at this particular restaurant, the architecture of the meals changed. It's not the traditional, you have one starter, one main cheese and dessert. He wants you to have a lot of different experiences during a meal. So these are their tasting size portions. So you might eat five, six, seven different dishes, depending on how hungry you were. I see. Okay. Well, that's, that's it's quite fun. fascinating. It's, it's really fun. It's a fun way to eat. And his, his reasoning, I think, there is uh, he's very respectful of the fact that uh, anyone going to his restaurant, it's a lot of money. It's a special occasion by definition. And he wants people to have as much pleasure as possible. And so it should be a, a suite or a series of of surprises and, and very different things that from anything that you would be accustomed to eating in your normal daily life. What about the service and decor? I'm eager to see. Was there a big redo? Because I know I don't know if this building is a heritage. It's a landmark building. Um, the last renovation of the dining room was by uh, a very famous French Paris-based decorator named Jacques Grange, and that was in 1992, or I think it was 92. Grange gave the dining room a beautiful uh, directoire uh, decor, which is still there, and it's very appropriate to the the architectural style of the pavilion. Um, Alineau has lightened up the interior a little bit. I mean, he's done away with a very fussy silverware, and um, in, in favor of in terms of the of the table settings of something more contemporary. So there's a there's a nice edgy contrast between the the directoire decor and the um, the contemporary table table tableware. Um, the service is kid glove. I mean, it's absolutely exquisite. Um, he had the 
Alino had the good sense to retain the team who've been working in this restaurant, who know how it works, who know the clientele. And these are, these are waiters. Some of them have been working there for 30 years. And they're very excited to have a new chef. And they're there. I was there the first week that the restaurant opened with Alino in the kitchen. And the service was magnificent. Now, would you go back, uh, question A, as a guest, question B, as a paying customer? Well, if this is an invitation, I'm saying yes, Paige. Um, <laughs> yes, I'd love to go back. I think one of the questions that I'm asked most often, and it's a, it's a very understandable one, is we want to go out for one really great meal when we're in Paris. So this is the, this is the, the money shot question. Um, where can we go and if, we're, if we decide that we're going to spend this big thumping amount of money and come away pretty certain that we're not going to be disappointed? This would be one of the five or six restaurants where I would send you, uh, depending on what you were looking for. Uh, the nice thing about this one is that you can eat avant-garde cooking or you can eat traditionally, and that's, that's really well worth pointing out because in a couple or with a pair of friends, One might want something traditional, and the other way might prefer something uh, a little more inventive. Uh, everyone can be happy at Medway, yeah. And any kind of uh, a rating? I mean, or is it off the charts? <laughs> um, I don't see that I could ever rate Yan. I've known Yannick Arino ever since he was uh, cooking in the restaurant in the basement of the Hotel Scribe in the heart of Paris, and that was... A long time ago, I've watched his career evolve. I think he's one of the great chefs of France and would unflinchingly give him the, the A, the solid A that he deserves. Thank you so much, Alex. You're welcome, Paige. You're listening to Paris, Good Food and Wine on World Radio Paris. I'm your host, Paige Donner. Up next is my interview with Chef Yannick Ayeno, named Chef of the Year here in France for 2015. In this interview, he speaks to me about his winemaking endeavors. So we're here um, right in the belly of the Boers in, um, in Paris, and we're at Yannick Ayeno's um, newest terroir parisien. And I'm sitting right in front of this renowned chef, three-star Michelin chef. So can you just introduce yourself and tell us more that we don't know about you? <laughs> Bien, bonjour, je suis uh, Yannick Aleno et uh, je suis cuisinier, chef de cuisine. Et passionné, uh, passionné aussi d'un terroir, et le terroir parisien. Uh, Hello, terroir parisien, I'm Yannick Aleno, I'm a chef. I've got a passion for Parisian terroir. So at Terroir Parisien, We want to promote traditional local foods in bistros where people can come for dinner or lunch and have a good time. And um, this terroir parisien, this one differs from the first one over at Maubert Mutualité in that this one is specialized in rillettes and everything pâté. So steering the conversation towards wine, are there any wines that you are excited about right now for the spring and going into summer that you'll be pairing with your cuisine here? I usually say that the two terroir parisien bistros are brothers. Both have the same DNA, but have separate, unique characters. In the one located at the Bourse, we have focused on charcuterie, the French term for meats and cold cuts. 
with the best charcutier in France in our kitchen. We have created a charcuterie laboratory, so everything is homemade. We launched a Riette Bar for the 6 p.m. after work cocktail hour. Now that spring is here, most people want very light and fruity wines, so I would suggest first and foremost some Côte du Rhône, which are full of sunshine, perfect to welcome summer. An amazing thing. I just made this wonderful discovery, which I should have known before, but you have, you do, you have a winery with uh, Michel Chaputier, and you make wines that are both from Saint-Joseph and Croze-Hermitage. Can you talk to us a little bit about your winemaking endeavors, please? Euh, moi je suis passionné de vin, c'est vraiment quelque chose qui me, qui me plaît beaucoup et le, un grand repas sans un grand vin c'est toujours quelque chose d'un peu compliqué à, à imaginer. I have a passion for wine. It's something I enjoy very much. I can't envision a great meal without a great wine. So the joint venture with Michel Chapoutier came very naturally at a domain called Yannick Aleno Michel Chapoutier. We have vineyards in Saint-Joseph and Crozamitage, and we produce a range of wine composed of one white and four reds, ranging from classic Côte du Rhône to Croix de Chabot, a truly exceptional wine. Robert Parker gave a 93 out of 100 at our first cuvee, which made us really proud. We have a domain in Crozamitage, in a village called Gervan. It's a delightful wine to share with friends and have a good time. So wonderful. Uh, is there anything um, that you'd like to add that I haven't that I haven't asked you? Like anything that you're going to be embarking on soon, or other projects you'd like to speak about? Il y a des projets, on en a toujours. On est en train de de finaliser un ouvrage. We never stop having new projects. We are putting the final touches to a new book. Also, I have embarked on a lengthy rewriting of the sauce book, the DNA of French cuisine. I think the modern sauce has not yet been written, so I have been working on that for two years now. Sauce is what allows very different foods to pair to perfection on a plate, like beef and asparagus. Sauce is what makes a dish typically French. Hey, all right. I want to thank you very much for being so generous and spending your time to do this interview with us today. Thanks to you. Thank you. <laughs> You're listening to Paris Good Food and Wine, brought to you by World Radio Paris. Next is a special report by Gabrielle Mondesir, who brings us her sit-down interview with renowned baker Frederick Lalos. Boulangerie. Bread is such an important part of French culture that there's a separate word for bread baking, boulangerie. And nobody is more passionate about boulangerie than Frédéric Lalos. He supplies his bread to restaurants with no less than 35 Michelin stars, including La Serre, Guy Savoie, and La Tour d'Argent. He has several bakeries in Paris and one in Taiwan. Yet for all his accolades, for Chef Lalos, it comes down to making the best bread possible. I spoke with him in his bakery on Rue des Bellefeuilles in Paris's 16th arrondissement. In part one of this two-part interview, the chef talks about how he got started in boulangerie, participating in the grueling Meilleur Ouvrier de France competition, and the importance of passing on his knowledge to the next generation. 
Alors écoutez, assez bizarrement, Bizarrely enough, since I was very young, from the age of five or six years old, I wanted to become a bread baker. I don't know where I got it from because my parents were not bread bakers at all. But despite everything, this is what I've always wanted to do. When he reached his teen years, the first step to becoming a boulanger, you guessed it, that means bread baker, was convincing his parents he knew what he was doing, giving up his traditional schooling to focus on bread baking. I could have started studying boulangerie after ninth grade, as everyone does, but at the time I was only 14 and a half. I remember it well, and in my time, I'm, I'm not old, but in my time, 14-year-old children didn't decide things, parents did. And my parents said, no, 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 no boulangerie, you're going to continue your studies. Well, I, I listened, I continued my studies. 10th grade, 11th grade, and in the 11th grade I was 16 and a half and I said, now I'm finished. Sine, cosine, calculus, I'd had enough. I wanted to study bread baking, so I went a little bit against the will of everyone. Maybe that's, that's what gave me that little extra strength, I think. When asked what makes him so passionate about bread baking, he says, it's simply the most beautiful profession. Why is it? Well, I'll tell you. It's simply because we transform living matter, and the dough is alive. There's really a feeling that we have in this profession that I think, objectively, you don't get from a lot of professions. You start with flour that is alive, because flour is living, it's not dead. There are ferments in it that, when mixed with water, will react, and then you make a dough, but a dough that breathes, that develops in the oven, that eats because the dough with its yeast eats sugar in the flour and so there's a whole physical transformation which is really exceptional and it's one of the professions where I think if you put love into what you're doing you get a beautiful product. In 1997 he competed in the Meilleur Ouvrier de France competition, MOF for short. For those who are not familiar with the MOF competition it is one of the most prestigious professional titles awarded in France. Held only approximately every four years, it is available for a wide range of skilled crafts, from carpentry to lace work to pastry and, of course, bread baking. Once you win the title, you're an MOF for life. But winning doesn't come easily. I prepared for it for three or four years. So for three or four years, you're under pressure. For three or four years, you think of nothing else. I got up at night when I had an idea. In the beginning, it happened to me to have ideas in the night, because at night, that's when you're thinking about things. Um, so, so I had ideas at night, but I didn't write them down. And, and then the next day, I remembered that I had had an idea, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was. So then I told myself, whenever you have an idea, you get up. So at night, I would get up and take notes and all that. Just to tell you that you're a little consumed by it. Your whole mind is really... I think people can't fully understand how, when you're really preparing for it, your mind is totally taken up by it. I stopped living. My private life was on pause. Suddenly, I didn't see my friends anymore. I, I didn't see my family. I was always alone. I would leave home on Friday morning. I would go back on Sunday evening. I would sleep on a bag for a couple of hours when I was tired. And I worked and worked and worked. His hard work paid off. Winning at the age of 26, he was, at the time, the youngest MOF ever in bread baking. When asked what it felt like to win the title, he describes the moment they read off the names of the winners. 
They gave them, I, I still remember, I, I don't always have a great memory, but I remember this like it was yesterday. They gave the results by alphabetical order. I knew the three or four names that were before me, and I knew the ones that were after me. So I knew that as soon as they got to the ones after me, if I hadn't been announced, it was over. You know, you couldn't say, okay, maybe, no. So I knew exactly, I, the closer they got to my name, the more your heart, you say to yourself, it's not possible, my heart is going to come out of my chest. And when his name was called, it was a moment of emotion, he says, that is only comparable to what he felt at the birth of his children. Yet despite the prestige of the title, he remains humble. Well, you know, um, I always say, having it doesn't make you a living God, and not having it doesn't mean you're not a good baker. So I'm very humble about it, I've, I've remained grounded. He takes the responsibilities that come with being an MOF to heart. I would even say the hardest part comes afterwards, because afterwards you have to live up to it, you have to. Wherever you go, young people have such high expectations. People who come work for me in my bakeries, they have such high expectations, coming to work for Best Ouvrier de France. So they really expect great things. So you, you've got to be available, meet their expectations, listen, give advice and so on. So don't think it's a vacation afterwards. Afterwards it's, it's wonderful, but it's not a vacation, that's for sure. Part of his philosophy is the importance of transmitting his knowledge to the next generation. You know, I say, if I'm here today, it's because I've had great teachers. I've always had people who have helped me, who have given me advice and guided me. And I owe it to myself to do the same thing. In my six bakeries, I have about 10 apprentice bakers, and I pay a lot of attention to them, because I owe it to myself to give them what I was so happy to have at their age. This is what inspired him to put his approach to bread baking down on paper. That's exactly why I wrote a book. I didn't write a book to say I'm an author. I'm an author, sure, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is to say, I'm going to write some recipes on paper, a philosophy that I think is good. Then afterwards, the young kid who wants to look it over and be inspired by it, well, that's super. Like I was very happy in my time to go into a bookstore and buy books on bread baking. I was happy because at least I read them, I, I looked them over, I took some things from them. Or I didn't, but at least I listened to everyone. And that's what allows you to create something for yourself and move forward. So it's really in the same spirit that I said I'm going to write a book. It's in that spirit that I take on young people. You'll be able to see, I, I have lots of people here who are very young. Milton, who works with me, is 27. He arrived when he was 18. I took him on when he was very young, and today he is competing for the best Ouvrier de France competition. So it's a lovely evolution. Uh, the young guy there, working with the dough, won Best Apprentice in France title, and he is now preparing a European bread baking diploma. So it's really to tell you that we owe it to each other to advance. We're a group of young people, we love our profession, and let's move forward. It's really a philosophy. That concludes part one of our interview with Chef Lalos. This has been Gabrielle Mondesir reporting for Paris Good Food and Wine. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for part two, in which the chef talks to us about how French bread consumption has gone down over the last century and gives home bakers a tip to improve the consistency of their results. Stay tuned for Margaret Henriquez, president of Krug, as she explains to us why men prefer tannins. I'm Paige Donner, your host of Paris, Good Food and Wine, here on World Radio Paris.
Fantastic. So I've got the real privilege of sitting um, in the presence of Madame Enriquez, Margaret Enriquez, who is the the president of Krug. And uh, she's going to tell us a bit about the Krug sounds because her marketing finesse has just been elevating the, the label even higher than it's been known for. So, yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much. And Krug sounds is an initiative that comes from understanding that any great champagne, any great wine is there to give you pleasure. And for different reasons, we've connected too much uh, the, the sensation with technicalities and rationalities, when this is not for rationalities. So sound is music, is something that champagne, you, uh, only champagne has. Champagne sounds, you have a sound, it's like the sound of the sea, you go into the sound of the sea with th thousands of, of uh, internet information about that. But the sound of champagne, there's nothing. So the same way you taste, and when you taste, you put the nose in, and this is why you have to drink sh good champagnes always in wine glasses, not flutes, because you can put your nose in and then you will smell first, because nature, human nature, you smell first, and then you will activate your taste buds and you will taste differently. So we thought, let's invite people to connect with their emotions. First, they will, they will listen to the sound of champagne, and then they will feel the music that this champagne is bringing to the person. And so this was the first step into a full universe we are today of music. And it's to invite people to connect to their emotions. And in the same way they love music, they have to refer to a champagne. When people ask me, which is the best champagne in the world? Even though I would love to say Krug, because I think it's the best champagne in the world, I never say so. I always say it's the one you love and gives you pleasure. The same as music. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fabulous response. I'm going to have to remember that one. <laughs> and now just to prior to turning on the, the recording, you were uh, speaking to me uh, just uh, briefly about the tastes between men and women. Do women uh, portray a certain kind of um, affection towards champagne that perhaps in, in a greater degree than men? Yes, definitely, yes. I, I, you, you, there is statistics that are behind this. 70% of champagne are drunk by women. I do believe, after my long career in the wines and spirit business, that there is something uh, between women and tannings. And it is proven that uh, women in general, doesn't mean every woman, we don't have such an affection for tannings. We have a reaction to tannings. So... There are many women would love red wines. Doesn't mean anything. It's statistically, they, this is why uh, also women love champagne because it's, they love the 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 finesse, the these these bubbles, the sensation. It's there is a magic and and joy in in drinking champagne, especially good champagnes. It's a unique pleasure. So we do know that women would love to listen that they have the right to ask for champagne, to have dinner, to have lunch. Champagne is not just a drink for celebration. For sure it is not a bottle to shake and to spray around. Good champagnes are to be drunk in any time, in any moment, 
in a good glass, not so cold, because if you're very cold, you are very covered. And so if you want to discover what is inside, you have to put temperature up. So you have to put temperature a little up. And we know that uh, there is a, a, a amazing preference for, for, for champagne in women. And we also know that when a woman asks with determination for something, men will always please them. And there you have it, the wisdom of a Krug lover. That's all for this episode of Paris, Good Food and Wine. I'm Paige Donner. Stay tuned for our next segment here on World Radio Paris. So I say it to you Like those French people do Because it's all so good